You are listening to audio from Citizens Church, Elmira. You can find more resources and learn more about our church at citizensalmira.ca. If you haven't already, you can turn in your Bibles to Philippians, where we'll be looking at the passage of Scripture. Nobody knows everything about you. There's all kinds of details about yourself that your parents don't know about you, that your kids don't know about you. If you're married, your wife or your husband doesn't know about you. If you have a roommate, uh, they don't know these things about you. There are things even about yourself that you don't even know. Maybe you forgot that they happened. Something you said when you were like 10 years old or like a day where all kinds of things happened and you just have no recollection or memory of it at all. Our, our minds aren't capable of kind of taking it all in, storing it and recalling it. It may be in there somewhere, but to bring it up is another story. And even on the pew that you're sitting on, there are people sitting next to you. You don't need to look at them, okay? Just keep looking straight up at me. But there are people sitting next to you that you have no idea some of the things that they have been through, some of the things that they have experienced. You have no idea even some of the things that they believe in or think are good or bad. You see, the interesting thing is as we are gathered here together, we are a local church and some of us are committed to Citizens Church as, as the place that we come to weekly. Some of us are just visiting or, you know, one-off visit, whatever it is. But we gather here together and we come from a diversity of backgrounds and views. And so when it comes to things like the environment or when it comes to things like politics, when it comes to our view of sexuality, even when it comes to our view of God, there's a plethora of views sitting in this church today. And within that diversity of views and, and opinions, uh, be them right or wrong, here we are gathered together, and we're doing a short three-week series called One Church, talking about, you know, things related to our church that maybe we don't regularly talk about, but we wanted to, like, bring them up. Sometimes there are even things that we are seeing differently on, and there's debate on them within the greater church world and sometimes even locally here, because we are a church plant, and I've been saying this for a few weeks now, in April, it's going to be three years that we're together, and each year we've grown as a church, and so we've got all kinds of new people in here, and, and all kinds of people from different places and different backgrounds, and that's wonderful. And so we, want to, we wanted to use this series to help us hopefully take a, a little step forward to coming together as one church. Because as a church plant, like we started as seven people kind of thinking through this idea and praying towards it. And then we were, you know, mid-30s as a launch team. And then now we've grown into what we are today, which is awesome. God has done something in our midst. But we're not a church that has, you know, 20 years of history, 50 years of history. We just don't have that. So we need to work at bringing us together as a church and and putting in place things that will help pull us together to literally be one church. 
there is constantly disunity in the New Testament. And I think each week I've kind of seen some verses, pulled some verses up, just for us to see it, to get a glimpse of it. Today we're looking at Philippians 1, but at the end of Philippians, actually, in chapter 4, it says this, in chapter 4, verses 2 and 3. Paul is writing this. He says, I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree with one another. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Paul says, there's two ladies in your church that are not getting along. And these are quality people, okay? These are people, Paul says, they work side by side with me in the gospel. And when you look at scripture, you see Paul did not like work with fools, right? Paul had like a high standard. He's like, these people need to be top tier people that are going to work with me. And now here they are, Yudia and Syntyche. And Paul's like, man, can you help them bring some resolution to whatever it is? He doesn't even tell us what the problem is. Help them work this thing out. And the beauty of these verses is it shows us, even in churches that the Apostle Paul planted or was a part of, there was like disunity. There was problems. And Paul says, work it out. Work it out. Find a way to come to unity together. So we're trying to do that even here. And over the weeks, we've talked about things that have been difficult and hard and and maybe you've disagreed with them, or maybe it's just been good to talk about these things. But the goal with it was that we would see the very thing happen that, Philipp, that Paul is asking for in Philippians. That we would work it out. That we would come to unity, come to an understanding so that God, maybe God is, is better able than to use us corporately for whatever he has for us in the future. So disunity is not uncommon and the way that we find unity, the way that these guys find unity is through understanding primarily who God is and what he has to say to us. So it starts with God. And we're going to start in our passage by looking at verse 27. So when it comes to commitment, which is what we're talking about this week, this idea of committing to something, we want to root that commitment in what God has done for us. The commitment that we have to something, to a local church, to the work that God is doing, is going to come through God's commitment to us. Look at verse 27. Philippians 1 verse 27 says this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel, so that whether I come to see you or I'm absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. Worthy of the calling. I don't know how many of you have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. And I feel like I've mentioned that movie a few times, okay? So obviously you can guess I like that movie, okay? But it's getting old now already. But Saving Private Ryan starts, if you remember, the movie starts with this family that is walking in the cemeteries somewhere in Europe, right? All these stones of fallen soldiers. And they're walking... And, you know, classic Steven Spielberg is just like the tension is rising as he's looking at all these graves that are out there. And the old man who we'll find out is a veteran of the war, he like 
at one point there, he just falls on his knees. He's just overwhelmed at what he's seeing around him. And he stares straight right into the camera and then starts the movie. You know, like two and a half hours of explaining the story of these men who were going in to save Private Ryan. And if you know the story, I'm totally giving it away here, okay? So if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry. This is what happens, okay? Most of the platoon or the, the group of guys who are going to find Private Ryan, they end up dying in the process. I, I can't remember now if all of them die or if there's like one or two left, okay? And Private Ryan survives. He is saved. That's the title. And by the end of the movie, it comes back to Private Ryan, who is that old man. And if you remember, he gets up, he's still standing in the cemetery there, and he pulls his wife near to him, and he, he says, tell me I've been a good man. Tell me I've lived a good life. And within those words, within those couple of sentences, is this idea, have I been worthy? These guys who came and died to save me have been gone now for 60 years, 50 years, and now he's, after living his whole life, all of his experiences, he's asking his wife, he's essentially begging her, tell me I've been worthy of the cost that they gave, the lives that they gave for me. So when Paul comes here, for the believers here and for us this morning, to anchor our unity, our commitment to each other, he starts this way, he says, let your manner of life be worthy, to be worthy. But our, our understanding of that might not line up with what Scripture is actually saying. Because here's what the gospel is. The gospel is this. The gospel says that each and every one of us have been born in sin. It was not what we chose. It came to us through our parents. And throughout our lives then, we experience the effects of that sin. Trouble comes at us from the world, and we are the source of trouble in this world. The choices that we make, the hatred that we experience, sometimes the, the physical realities of it, but oftentimes even just the spiritual and the mental pain of sin in our lives. And then ultimately, maybe 30 years, maybe 50 years, maybe 80 years, the final, the final payment of sin comes due. And that is that we lose our lives. We die. Every single one. There's a 100% rate of death in this world. Nobody has escaped it except Jesus. And that is the final mark of sin in our earthly bodies. Yet the gospel says this, and the good news says this, that Jesus came. We just celebrated at Christmas. Jesus came, put on flesh, became a man. He lived a perfect life. And then he came and put himself in our place and sacrificed himself for our sins. This is the good news. This is the gospel. That when we put our trust in Jesus, his life, all that he lived, all that he got from living that life, from conquering death and rising from the dead, is now given to us. What an exchange. I mean, that's why we call it grace. Do any of us deserve that? 
No, not even the best of us in here deserve it. We have all wronged on so many levels. And so the gospel says that Jesus has come to take our place. Now, all other religions in this world, and even all other non-religions, just call them beliefs or viewpoints or whatever they are, are totally the opposite. In those cases, those religious systems or those belief systems, you have to perform. You have to to live a certain way, maybe you have to pray a certain way, or maybe you have to go to certain places, or maybe you have to have a, a certain demeanor or a disposition about you, or you have to make certain sacrifices. You do all these things right, so then the result of that is you are given something. Uh, the pleasure of a deity, or a good life, good fortune, whatever it is. You do all this work, and you get this result. And if you make a mistake along the way, you do something again to be corrective and to make it right, and then you get the good result. Again, if it's, even if it's atheism or some sort of worldview, there's a way that you live. There's a way where the people that are around you that think the way you do, they have to affirm what you're doing. And so as long as you stay within that road, everybody's happy, and the result, again, is good. It is the opposite of Christianity. Here what Paul is saying is, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. And what slipped into that sentence for many of us, even in the Christian world, is I got to like live worthy. Meaning I have to do the right things so I can get this thing which is called the gospel. And Paul says actually it's the opposite. The way that you live, the worthy life that you and I are called to live is the result of what Christ has done for us. The choices that we make to please God, the choices that we make to have our lives in line with the Holy Spirit that is within us is the result of God's work on our behalf. It's what Paul says in Ephesians is the gift of grace, the gift of salvation. So our motivation for having collective unity for having a commitment, the, the effort that we put to committing to the local church is based on being called worthy by God, not by being worthy by what we do. And there's a huge difference there. And if that message doesn't land like as a solid foundation for you, it will, it will misalign your actions in your daily life. It'll misalign even what you're doing in here on a Sunday morning, or what you do in missional family, because it will always be to prove yourself worthy. And what we discover pretty quick in life is that we're not worthy. We fall short like so many times, but the grace of God is powerful. So Paul says, live your life worthy of the gospel. But then he goes on and talks about our commitment to each other. Look at verse 27, the second half of that, he says, so that you will stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, standing firm together. In the scriptures, we are given some pictures and given some language around what it means to be committed together as God's people. Whether it is 
the universal church that exists around the world, things that kind of pull us together, or the local church. And one of the ways that God helps us to understand what this is supposed to be is through the image of family. And we use that language around here a lot. The language of brothers and sisters in Christ or just this idea of family together. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19, it says this. So then, this is like the, the result of salvation in our lives. He says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints. So he's getting us to think in this like citizenship mindset. But then he also says, You are also of God's household. Think of this. God has a house where his family lives. Maybe you have a house as well, and you have a place where you live, and you understand that imagery. Here, Paul in Ephesians is trying to get us to understand what has happened when we become Christians. We become a part of God's household. We live in his home. We are together as one family. And so in our world where we actually are tempted, we're worshipers, right? So we are tempted to worship things, and so we tend to worship our own nuclear family. We tend to place that as like the greatest good, you know, the things that are happening within my four walls here. But now in Scripture, God is trying to get us to see that our commitment as Christians is not just to our own nuclear family, it's actually to the household of God that we're together as one family. And that level of commitment is really uh, something that is profound for most of us. If you have a Bible, I didn't include it on here, turn to Mark chapter 10. I just want to read a few verses here for you to see. Mark chapter 10, verse 28 through 30. Thinking again of this idea of God's vision of family. And this idea of the household of God together. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus gives for us this vision of family. And this revolutionary new vision that comes through Jesus to his people. Mark chapter 10 verse 28 says this. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything and followed you. And Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake. But he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Jesus says, Here's what it means, Peter. Peter is like, we left everything to follow you. What do we, you know, what does that mean? And Jesus says, here is the revolutionary new vision for family in the kingdom of God. That you now come together and you get houses. Sounds pretty good, doesn't it? You get houses and you get brothers and you get sisters and mothers, and children. All this gets added to you in the household of God. There's a new vision now. There's not just a vision of 
the nuclear family that a single person, you know, can hope for if someone is married and has children. Jesus is saying now, this idea of God's household and God's family is for everyone that comes into the family of God. This is a new understanding of what it actually means to be family. And it, it raises then the, the depth and the understanding and the significance of that commitment that we have for each other. So within the, the biblical definition of this household of God is a massive diversity of people. So the, the family of God is this diversity of all the different races on the planet that can come together and enjoy a, a family-like relationship. There's also a, a new kind of increase in this family. So in a nuclear family, you're supposed to have a husband and a wife and they have children. But now the, with this redefinition, with this new revolutionary God family, you have brothers and sisters, you have mothers and fathers who are single, who are married, who are married with children, without children, whose children have moved out of the house, we see here that God actually has a bigger vision for this idea of family. Paul, who is a single person, regularly talks about people who he calls his children. Timothy, he calls my son in the faith. To churches, he says, you're my children. I'm your father. Jesus, who was single and never had children, tells the disciples, you're my children. He's playing the father role for them. So that means that every one of us enter into the role of family in God's household. It's revolutionary. That means all of us have a part to play in this commitment to one another. That is significant. It is deep. And the things that the, the family brings, the, the protection, the, the love, even at times the discipline, can be experienced in the family of God through commitment for God's good and for the good of his people. It is a revolutionary idea. So let's just get really practical here just for a few minutes, okay? So what does that mean? First, it means this, that we have to commit. If you're going to be in a, a local church, if you're going to experience the, the wonder of this family of God, then it takes commitment to it. We have, probably all of you have experienced learning an instrument, or maybe it's uh, you know, developing your muscles, or I don't know, whatever it takes, okay? The, some sort of thing that you have benefited from, even a small thing. You know, I think this summer I went to, I was dropping someone off in Kitchener, so I was there for about two weeks every day, and then I would go work in a coffee shop. And after like a few days, the, the lady who I think was the owner, she, she saw that I was coming every day and she was like, hey, and she got familiar. She knew I just wanted a black coffee, regular, you know. So by the second week, I'm walking in the door, cup is ready. I didn't even have to say anything, you know. It was just like slid over to me. I still had to pay, okay. It wasn't free, but the, the coffee was ready and it was, it was actually really wonderful, and you know what that was? It was the product of commitment to one place. It's simple, 
But it's the product of commitment to one place, commitment to one thing. And all of us can hopefully know that experience of joy and delight that can come actually from the commitment to one place or to doing one thing. It actually has a benefit. And so we have here at Citizens Church missional families that are our way of uh, really expressing that family-like relationship. We get a taste of it on the gatherings here on Sunday mornings, but really to take it to the next level takes a greater commitment. And, and here's what we want. For you to really experience the family experience in missional family will take commitment. If there's no commitment to it, you will not experience it. So we would actually rather that you weren't in a missional family if you're not going to commit to missional family. Because you're going you're gonna to have the label of saying, I'm in a missional family, but you're not actually experiencing the benefits that will come from really being in a missional family. And that takes like a next level of commitment. Which again, all of us can do that. It's just a matter of, will we choose to enter into that? So, Commitment is a big part of it. Communication as well, okay? Communication, the words that we use, the way that we talk to people that we are in commitment to makes a difference. I've never done this, but there's like, uh, there's a thing out there called ghosting. Have you heard of that before? Ghosting, okay? Some people are giggling because they've probably done it before, okay? And I think the definition, if I have it right, is you're maybe in a relationship with someone or maybe you're uh, in, you know, maybe even dating with someone and you want to kind of end that relationship and so you ghost them. Is that right? You talk them to like put the phone away, you know, don't answer any more texts or block the number. I don't know, however you do it, you ghost them. Sometimes we before the word was even a thing, we just, we do that. It's just easier maybe to forget something or to push it to the side, to stop communicating, to just ghost people. And, and it's a way for us to um, try to not commit something to, to something. Maybe we're afraid to fully commit or maybe we're just not into whatever's happening anymore and so we just cut it off. And so part of commitment is actually continuing on to, to com communicating, whether it's on your WhatsApp group chat or whether it's someone, you know, in your missional family, whatever it is, that, that level of communication to take it to the next level can be your step of commitment. So commit, communicate, and last, contribute. Nobody is meant to be a spectator. Nobody is, God has not designed the local church just to be a place that you come and spectate and watch. The local church is this organic gathering of God's people that participate in some way. Maybe they, they serve on a Sunday morning in, in, in worship or in tech or greeting someone or helping with kids. Or maybe for you it's, um, bringing food to the potluck that your missional family is having or, or giving to the church. Whatever it is, you were called to give in some form to be a part of what is happening, to contribute. And when you do that, when you do that act, whatever it is, 
Whatever it is, when you do it, you do that from the foundation of being called worthy by God. Not to be accepted because you're worthy for doing these things, but because Christ has done it for you. It is the foundation for your commitment, your contribution, and your communication together. There is a small abbey in Iowa called Our Lady of the Mississippi Abbey. And I've used this quote before here, and someone reminded me of it this week, but it it encapsulates in beautiful language this idea of commitment. And for them, for these 13 women that live in this little abbey, it is a vow of stability. That's what they call it. But this is how it goes. It says this, we vow to remain in all of our life with our local community. We live together pray together, work together, relax together. We give up the temptation to move from place to place in search of an ideal situation. Ultimately, there is no escape from oneself, and the idea that things would be better someplace else is usually an illusion. And when interpersonal conflicts arise, we have a great incentive to work things out and restore peace. This means learning the practices of love, acknowledging one's own offense, offensive behavior, and giving up one's preferences, forgiving. Man, just, just look at those words for a second. Think about what they're saying. And these women are committing to a lifetime of living together and working together. They get up for prayer at 4.30 in the morning, okay? This is like a heavy-duty commitment to each other. But those words are beautiful and and capture in many ways the spirit of what it means to be in family together with God's people. But they also definitely require a level of commitment. And we are not uh, cultic in that we force people through like, you know, means and you know, any kind of ways that we can to make people do these things. Rather, we're saying we're a gathered people together who choose to do these things. We willingly choose to follow Jesus together in this context. And the very things that these women talk about of giving up personal preference and of not running away and practicing love and forgiveness are the very things that we want to see take root in this local context. Let's just end with this. Our commitment to each other is based on God's commitment to us. And the reason why we so desperately need to commit to each other is because all of us head out the door here, you know, in like 15 minutes uh, to a world that is not shaping us to the image of Christ. A world that is regularly against us. In this Philippian world even, they were living in a hyper-sexualized culture. The Roman culture was highly sexualized. Out in the markets, you could walk. You can, you can still see them in cities like Pompeii and other Roman cities. In the markets where you're picking up your veggies and your fish are like massive murals of full sexuality. And instruments like cups and bowls that are made out of you know, the sexual act, okay? So we live in a sexualized 
culture, but so did the early Christians. And they're walking out into this world, raising their children, trying to love Jesus in that context. They also lived in a pluralistic society, again, similar to ours, where there's all kinds of gods, and, and there was gods out in the markets, and, and people had their own gods in their homes. We don't have figurines anymore, but we've got jerseys, okay? Whatever the God is, we have it as well. They also lived in a hostile world. Pliny, who was an ancient Roman writer, talks about investigating Christians. And he would grab people and try to figure out what it was that made these Christians tick. And he recorded for us in his ancient writings just different things that he did. And he talks once about um, getting two women who were Christians and torturing them and trying to figure out what made them tick. And what he discovered was that they, they gather once a week and they sing hymns together. And he said they, they also, they just eat like simple meals together with each other. And then this was his assessment of it. Pliny, he, that's his name, nevertheless judged Christians as holding a perverse an extravagant superstition. That was his conclusion. These people are like messed up, man. Roman culture was also extremely proud. They thought that they had the way. They knew the truth. They were the ones who, you know, greatest society ever. And Census, who was another Roman writer, says this. He characterized Christians as lower class simpletons who are easily deluded. Listen, what the Philippians were walking out into is, is the same world we live in today. Very little has changed. And so the reason why our commitment to each other is so important is because we walk into this world that is a battlefield for us. And so Paul says in Philippians 1 that we are not to be frightened in anything by our opponents. We're, to be able, we're, we're supposed to walk out in total freedom. Now, we don't live in a world where, like Pliny, where we're being tortured. Just yet, it's not happening in our society yet. Could come a day where that comes, who knows. But all the other pressures, all the other things that we're afraid of, we are called to step into that with total freedom. And the way that we do that, because none of us does that really well, because we're all afraid. We all get nervous about, you know, being challenged. The way that we do that is by corporately committing together. And that's what the early church did. And that's how it just grew and grew and grew over the first centuries. Hundreds of thousands of people. It was by, by Christians being committed to each other. Rodney Stark, who is a professor at the University of Washington, and he's written about the history of the church, he wrote this. He says, thus while membership, that's this idea of membership to the church, being committed to each other, it was expensive. It was, in fact, a bargain. That is because the church asked much of its members. It was thereby possessed of its resources to give much. Rodney's saying this is actually what made the difference for the local church. They were committed to each other. They were committed to doing what they needed to do as God's people. And then they had like the strength to be able to stand for Christ. The strength to be able to have a witness for him. 
In Hebrews chapter 3 puts it this way. But encourage one another day after day, as long as it is still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. This is what we're called to, to be committed to each other because of Christ's commitment to us. Because when we leave here, it won't take long. We will have all kinds of pulls, all kinds of messages coming at us that will desperately try to sell to us a new kind of joy and a new kind of love and aspiration in life. And here we are reminding ourselves again this morning that Jesus is actually the way. In Jesus, there is a greater joy than anything else can give. In John chapter 4, Jesus is by a well. Maybe you're familiar with this story, the Samaritan who's there and he asks her for a cup of water and she's kind of surprised because he's a Jewish guy. And so she says, why are you asking me for a cup of water? And he's like, just, I'd like a cup of water. And and he basically says, if you would want something more than water, I can give that to you. And she's confused. She's not getting it. So she's like, um, I know this well is really deep. So maybe you've got something that can go really far down and get something deeper. Is that what you're talking about? And Jesus says, no, actually, what I'm here to offer you is not just water, not just refreshing water, which is good on a hot, dry day, not just something that can satisfy you here in the moment and, you know, give you some sort of momentary joy. Jesus says, I want to give you living water. That's the only thing that I, as Jesus, can give to you is living water, which will change your life forever. And so this morning, we want to say together, our commitment to each other is for the sake of enjoying this living water who is Jesus himself. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for being committed to us. Thank you for your work on the cross and through all that we gain as as your children, Lord, as the free gift of grace. And Lord, we thank you for the living water which comes into our very souls and, and we get to experience joy and satisfaction like nothing else can give. Lord, please help us to see that this week again, to find our full and deepest satisfaction in Jesus Christ. Amen.